For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and ACLU Oklahoma Executive Director Ryan Kiesel. Oklahomans are voting on five state questions on November 6th, and over the next few weeks, I want to get your thoughts on these measures. State Question 798 was created and passed by the state legislature as Senate Joint Resolution 66 to put the governor and lieutenant governor on the same ticket by 2026. Uh, this would be similar to the president and vice president race. Ryan, what do you think of this measure? You know, I think it's largely a gimmick. Uh, whenever it came, it was part of the step up plan and they were looking at a series of governmental reforms that they were putting together with uh, a revenue package. And the, the intent of those reforms was to create a, m- a more efficient, more effective, more responsive government, or at least that was the narrative around them, so that uh, we could maybe avoid situations like we've seen in the past uh, past few years where we've had consecutive special sessions, uh, you know, revenue failures, and crises in, in state funding. But this really, you know, combining the lieutenant governor and the governor into the same ticket really doesn't change anything, change any of that. And even the, the, the legislative authors of this, whenever they're questioned about, does this solve any of our ongoing problems at the state, or is there a problem that this is meant to, uh, to resolve? They said no. Uh, and you know, really, when we look at this, you know, we'll, we'll join a handful of, uh, we'll join a majority of states that do something similar to this. It's, it'll, it's still, it will still be up to the legislature to decide whether or not the nominees uh, get to, the gubernatorial nominees get to pick their own lieutenant governor candidates, or if the lieutenant governor candidate would be picked through a primary process. And, you know, those are called, uh, I guess, and I, I'd read that these were called the, the arranged marriage uh, of the <laughs> lieutenant governor, uh, governor tickets. So, yeah, I think it's a gimmick. I think that there there are far more uh, effective and worthwhile elect, uh, electoral and political reforms that the state ought to consider. Um, I suspect this will probably pass, though. Neva, I, I would agree that uh, in all likelihood it will pass. Uh, but even the polling that was done at the beginning of the year showed overwhelming support. You know, without really any conversation at that point about it being a state question on the ballot uh, this November. But you're right, Ryan. I mean, 26 states have this. I mean, it's uh, you can make arguments on both sides. I mean, I think this, the strong arguments that the state chamber and others have have uh, made in support of this obviously is that you have a better opportunity to have a unified message kind of a uh, a situation where you have a team uh, working together uh, certainly the argument that uh, it eliminates the prospect of having uh, uh, a governor and lieutenant governor from op- opposing parties uh, I mean those are those are some of the things on the um, on the pro side and then of course on the on the opposite side I mean the arguments uh, that uh, that 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 consolidates too much power with the with the governor that uh, um, you know in fact one of the, probably the arguments that that you hear as much as any is that really uh, the position is not necessary and it should be abolished and save the money I don't mm-hmm. know that that's been a real strong argument in Oklahoma but it certainly has been in other states when this type of issue has come you know come to the forefront so you know I think the bottom line is if it if it gives the opportunity for um, for to strengthen really the overall executive branch so that they have a better uh, uh, better prospects of not only dealing on the legislative front but you know perceptually you know messaging to the to the public uh, overall I think that may be one of the strongest arguments and and whether this passes or not I think that a conversation moving forward that we're probably going to see in the state legislature is what's the role of, of the lieutenant governor mm-hmm. and you know should you know should the lieutenant governor 
have more power? Should they have less power? Should we eliminate the position altogether? That's, uh, I think, the case in four states. They don't even have a lieutenant governor, and their their uh, state senate elects a uh, a, pr- a president pro temp or president of the senate at that point, which is what the lieutenant, pre- governor, does what right lieutenant governor does right now. Uh, but only in rare situations. You know, Governor Fallon, when she was lieutenant governor, she took control of the chamber uh, to uh, move through workers' compensation reform in the state senate. But that's that's a very rare thing, and so. The power of the lieutenant governor in Oklahoma is really whatever the lieutenant governor wants it to be. I mean, they can they can make that position what they want it to be. And what we've seen that it is uh, in uh, most recent years is a platform to run for other offices, but not a very successful one. Well, I think the other thing is uh, the lieutenant governor uh, is it does allow for orderly transition in, in the event that there is a death or resignation or impeachment uh, mm-hmm. of, of the governor. So, I mean, probably in the minds of most voters, uh, just like having an orderly transition uh, at the uh, at the federal level, that probably, uh, to me, um, uh, makes for one of the strongest arguments for the need to keep the position, regardless of, as you say, how that position ultimately is fashioned. Yeah. Recently ousted incumbent Republicans in the state house might have been facing a battle from within their own party. A dark money political action committee spent about $750,000 in attacks against them, and fellow Republicans gave to challengers in the race. The actions took out many conservatives who went against legislative leaders in voting against a tax increase for teacher pay. Neva, does this take party infighting to a whole new level? Well, I think party infighting on both sides has been been around since uh, time began. I, th- I think that it is easy uh, in, in the stinging aftermath of some of these defeats for this conversation to kind of bubble up and for there to be some uh, animosity and, and, and some uh, kind of negative backlash that uh, that's created. Bottom line is uh, uh, legislators, uh, th- they do have differences of opinions inside their own caucus as well as, as across party aisles. Uh, whether that spills over into elections, I don't think this is anything new. Uh, I think it is... Uh, uh, I think we see anytime you have a supermajority uh, in 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 an elective body, you're going to have uh, more and more division within within those ranks. And I don't think that's anything new. I think Democrats experienced that for many years when they were in the same place, and uh, now now we're seeing it with Republicans. It's something that's here, and I and I and I think it's probably here to stay. Ryan. Well, you know, I, I know that that happened with Democrats. I mean, it happened even whenever the Democrats were in the minority. Whenever I was in the legislature, there were some Democrats that I would have liked to <laughs> spend some money to oust. Uh, and, and you know who you are. <laughs> uh, I'll but, get the names. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, I, do think, I, I do think that this takes it to a, a brand new level. I mean, we're talking about massive amounts of money with, with very little transparency and, and legislative leadership, um, you know, really going after particular members of the, of the, of the caucus. I mean, that's, that to me is, is something that takes it to a new, new level where you have individual members contributing to primary opponents, uh, at, at, you know, pretty high levels, you know, thousands of dollars out of their own individual pockets or out of their own individual packs or campaign committees to primary challengers. And then you've got a, you know, a handful of, uh, political consulting groups that are controlling a lot of these ads. Even some of the political consultants running the ads say they don't know who's behind the ads. And so, I mean, it's it's really it's really interesting. And I think that it's one of the problems of what happens when you have one party government. And you know, kudos to the Republicans for going in and trying to root out some of the 
the more extreme elements of their caucus that were uh, really roadblocks to moving forward with progress in this last legislative session and special session and the session before that. Uh, but at the same time, a better accountability tool here would be uh, having open and, and honest conversations at the, at the ballot box rather than going in uh, you know, under the cover of some of these dark money groups. You know, it's interesting. I mean, it is it is a two-party proposition. I mean, both parties experience this. And I think the, the notion that somehow there's this influx of such tremendous amounts of money by these folks that it's really changing the, the total dichotomy of the election process, I don't think that's true. I think what we have is, in the instance, and I've said this before, in the instance of some of these incumbents that were defeated, they were already walking wounded in their own districts. I mean, you don't typically, mm-hmm. I mean, whether it's on whether they were willing or unwilling to raise taxes or whatever the issue that they're that they're suggesting that this really uh, w- would rise or fall on, I think more importantly, it's back in the districts where these, where these lawmakers have to defend their overall record, whether they've been responsive to their constituents, whether they're out there being proactive and engaged in campaigning in their districts, which in some instances, it was clear in the primaries, they were not. They were taking it for granted and they got caught flat-footed in some instances. So I think that uh, I think to, to kind of lay it off on that there's some sinister dark money group that no one knows anything about who they are and what they're doing and that they're somehow altering the political landscape in the Republican ranks is just, uh, I, I don't think there's any credence to that. But it's certainly good news for the leadership because they're going to have new people come well, in and, if, and, if the and Republicans I, and make I guess it. The question is, what is, quote, leadership? I mean, what, you know, the the leadership can be, can it be the leadership, a chairman of a committee, the, the, uh, the, uh, the, the pro tem, the speaker, the, I mean, what, what person in, quote, leadership? I mean, that kind of, that, that is a pretty wide array of folks that kind of fit that bill. Um, and anyone can be uh, very proactive in terms of going out, setting up their own leadership pack and, and raising money parallel to their own campaigns to be able to, uh, to, to help other folks, particularly those folks that are running the first time that have a great deal of difficulty finding enough money out there to really run an effective campaign sometimes. You know, whenever I came into office, there was the I mean, it's it's not like I was in office during like the peak of collegiality. It was it was it was you know the the rancor still existed, but not nearly to the level that it is right now. And I can remember that you know if you were going to go to an event in another legislator's district, you know, uh, of the same party or of an opposite party, you did them the favor of calling them up and saying, "Hey, I'm gonna you know I got invited to speak at your local Rotary Club. I'm gonna be in your district." Uh, is there anything that I need to, you know, even even your your fiercest political opponent, you try to give them a heads up. And, you know, now you've got uh, Chris Candidate, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, contributing directly to defeat of Mike Ritz, um, a, a 10 years, uh, 10 year serving Republican member of the state house. And, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not shedding any tears over Mike Ritz's absence in the state legislature. But it, that that does, I think, speak to a, a difference in collegiality that exists now to where it used to. And it, the when we talk about leadership, the way leadership used to rein folks in wasn't by you know, raising money on their own or leveraging dark money, money, uh, money uh, dark money from interest groups to come into these districts. It was through things like committee assignments. It was things like office assignments, parking spots, and even more powerful right now is the ability to tell some of these legislators that have just out there ideas that are destructive to the state, we're not going to hear your bills. You know, I think the dark money tone is really incorrect. It's really, I mean, at, at, at the forefront of all of this conversation, it's really about, uh, in the last legislative session, 
where were lawmakers with respect to raising taxes or not raising taxes? Business groups, other entities, uh, uh, influential people out there who have a, have a have an opinion on that matter, and they want to collectively weigh in and say we support these folks or we don't support these folks. Uh, that's part of the that's part of the process that I think we are seeing more and more of, and I think we will continue to see. I mean, these folks intend to have their voice heard as well as uh, what's happening inside the building. They want to uh, have their voice heard in these elections. I think that that's right. It's just interesting to me that even uh, Chris Kennedy, the Judiciary Committee chair in the House, he refused to disclose the groups that he was meeting with. Um, and then, like I said, some you know, Trevor Worthen, Fountain Hall, and some of these folks running these ads. Uh, you know, Trevor Worthen, one of the political consultants out there, former House member, he said in, in the AP piece uh, uh, covering this that he didn't even know who was behind the ads that he was uh, producing and putting out there himself. You know, so I, you know, the, the interest groups that are out there, and I think that Neva's right, this does break down to were you, were you for new revenue and responsible budgets, or were you just going to dig your heels in on principle? and let the ship sink the state of uh, the ship of state sink and you know good I'm glad they went out and they did this but in the future those issues may not be so clear uh, Oklahoma County District Attorney David Prater ends his invis- investigation of state superintendent Joy Hoffmeister Prater says any investigation into Hoffmeister for campaign finance violations is dead and won't be revived Ryan Hoffmeister's Democratic opponent John Cox has raised concerns on social media of charges possibly returning, but this now puts any rumors to end. You know, I think that that all this goes away right now uh, for uh, for Joy Hoffmeister, and, and and it's 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 welcome news for her. You know, the I think that you know, when you began to look at the the evidence that existed against her, uh, it was it was pretty weak to begin with. Most legal observers didn't think that there was a strong criminal case to be made against Joy Hoffmeister. So it's not a surprise that the investigation is over. But the fact that the specter of the investigation has lasted as long as it has, uh, that is, you know, I think speaks a lot to the power of a district attorney, not just David Prater, but any district attorney out there to have these open-ended investigations uh, that could potentially be you know, very, not just problem. I mean, you take somebody like Joy Hoffmeister, one of the most powerful political operatives in the state of Oklahoma has nevertheless been handicapped somewhat by the specter of this investigation. You take a low-income Oklahoman, a uh, work, uh, working-class Oklahoman out there gets a charge against him, and then just open-ended. You know, some folks sit in jail for months because they, they've got uh, charges against them. I mean, the, the power of the district attorney here uh, is, is really, to me, the, the real key to the story. And I'm glad the, the charges were dropped against Joy Hoffmeister. I think that that was the right thing to do. And Ryan says it was good news for Joy Hoffmeister. I'm guessing that's true as far as her moving forward now. Well, absolutely. She's in the middle of an election. It kind of takes that cloud that was hanging over that everyone was using uh, that were opponents uh, in the Republican primary as well as uh, her Democrat opponent. But but uh, the, the rest of the story that the uh, district attorney said was that it was not necessarily over for the other folks that had been mentioned and involved. It was only, it was only in the case of Joy Hoffmeister that it was dead and over, I think were the words that he used. So um, you know, I think when we look at these kind of complex investigations, they do go on. Uh, I mean, everyone wants this, uh, you know, one hour in a wrap kind of concept of the, mm-hmm. this is the way, you know, this is the way the process works. It is a, it is a very slow, laborious process. And, you know, in the, in the total context, I think we want that to be uh, pretty much the case because we want thoroughness, we want fairness, we want the, the resolution to be uh, with all of the facts. So I think, uh, I think these types of investigations 
investigations uh, with respect to elections and uh, uh, the money that's spent and if it's properly being spent are going to continue to be the focus through the years of, of district attorneys across the state as well as the uh, as well as the ethics commission and their role uh, uh, in overseeing those elections in terms of how the how the contributions and expenditures are made. Well, and, and I would just say that whether those investigations are warranted or not, and, and here they may very well be warranted, I, I don't know. Um, but, you know, the, I'm just talking about the, the effect that that has on those individuals. And, uh, you know, so if you've got somebody out there and that you are probably going to clear, but you, you've got that hanging over them, you know, that, that may be a key part of your prosecutorial strategy. You may need to put that person, what, what prosecutors call a brace, so that they uh, can be leveraged against some of the other uh, potential targets of the investigation. But all of that takes a very long time. It's, it's very uh, taxing on the individuals that, that are under that microscope, mm-hmm. um, even, even whenever that microscope is warranted. And it has had an actual effect on people who are running for election. If there are some kind of possible charges or even, even the shadow of a charge can, can actually absolutely and the worst possible and the worst possible scenarios when bogus charges are trumped up and and kind of thrown out there even without uh, the uh, uh, without the component of being moving forward through a real process through a district attorney or some or some other some other structured uh, process so I mean it is part of the the give and take in politics that people find very distasteful now is the uh, we see the escalation at the end of every campaign where people want to throw the um, you know whatever hand grenade they think they can find, uh, politically speaking, that will, uh, you know, kind of uh, cast this uh, air of uh, suspicion or controversy or uh, lay out things that may or may not have any foundation in fact. And that's the part that, uh, to the extent that I think everyone in the process can curb that, um, is is definitely warranted. And, and so I think the, the real takeaway here is that, Senator Jeff Flake, if you're listening, a thorough investigation takes longer than a week. <laughs> well, and also, I was actually going to say, but the, the David Prater is a Democrat, and yeah. he could have kept this open and politically motivated and, and maybe, you know, helped John Cox maybe bring up more charges and maybe win in an election. But Prater actually said, no, this is dead. And so that way it actually cleared the way for Hoffmeister likely to get reelected. You know, I'm a Democrat. I'm often on opposite sides with David Prater, but I think that he did the right thing here. And, you know, I I think that his, his role in, um, you know, I, I disagree with uh, the exercise of prosecutorial discretion, not just in his office, but around the state on many, many instances. But, but I, I do think that uh, here uh, we can say, that, you know, with, without a doubt that, that Prater's political motivations uh, here you know, don't, seem to, don't seem to be you know, designed to affect the outcome of this election. And, and in fact, he was trying to take that away right. so that it, so what he was potentially doing couldn't be leveraged against. Well, and I think even, even in the article that you referred to, I mean, the, the story talked about the fact that uh, that they had uh, teamed up uh, on uh, a recent summit I think just earlier this week uh, uh, where they were talking about issues of uh, you know trauma trauma focused issues in schools with kids I mean there are issues that clearly uh, transcend the you know kind of the political fodder and the investigation that uh, that we're talking about and I think it speaks to the fact that uh, uh, real political folks that understand doing what's best for the for the state and for the citizens, they rise above even contentious uh, uh, contentious events that uh, put them at odds. Uh, they can come back together to do the, the people's business and do things that are good for Oklahoma. 
A report from the dean of the University of Central Oklahoma's College of Education titled Right Sizing Oklahoma Districts claims our state could save nearly $30 million if it consolidated districts down to the number in states of similar sizes. Neva, this has always been a third rail in Oklahoma <laughs> politics, but could a report like this change the discussion? Well, it it. It extends the discussion. I mean, I think uh, most of the folks that uh, they, that are that are quoted in this article, most of the quote, uh, the folks that uh, talk about it politically speaking, say that it's a it's a it's a stick of dynamite. I mean, no one likes to get thrown into this conversation during the campaign season. I mean, they they all want to you know kind of step back and hope it it goes away. But the bottom line is, when we have 525 districts, uh, school districts in Oklahoma, three times the number for states our size across the country. I mean, when you look at the math on that, when you look at what the implications are on the budget, I mean, it's clear that we have to start to think about uh, something along the lines of uh, re- reforms in these areas and how that goes about. I think, you know, even you've heard the gubernatorial candidates both say that this should be driven at the local level. And I think that's where I think that's where the vast majority of citizens see that uh, resting, that it needs to be the folks in these communities beginning to uh, take a look at this. But they need need the information and they need to look at it realistically. I mean, if you have superintendent uh, salaries out of whack with the national average, uh, the out of whack with the number of, you know, these these school districts with a thousand or fewer students are really what's at the crux of these numbers. I mean, and whether that, uh, whether you can extract those folks out and those districts out and look at how we can deal with that better for them, better for, you know, budgets, better for the overall process and better for the kids getting an education that they need at the quality level that they deserve. I think those are the issues that need to be discussed. Right. You know, I think the the numbers in this report are a bit misleading. They, they talk about if we uh, eliminated 200 uh, of our superintendent salaries at an average salary of $150,000, that it's a, it's around a $30 million savings. But that doesn't take into account, I mean, if you consolidate all of these schools, you're not going to eliminate all administrative positions. In fact, in some of these larger consolidated districts, you're going to have assistant principals, you're going to have assistant superintendent, you're going to have some bleed over into other administrative staff. And then, you know, the Oklahoma Policy Institute about a year ago published a blog post called uh, some of you know the two big myths in, in education uh, policy. And one of the biggest is that if we consolidate schools, that we somehow save all this money and it will me- lead to more money in the classroom. Right now, that's about school district administration costs in the state of Oklahoma are 3% of total school spending. 3%. That's not to say that it's insignificant, but it's 3%. We could eliminate all of that and we would still be 47th in in-classroom spending. So it wouldn't move our rank at all. And that's a, that's eliminating all administration staff and that doesn't do anything. And when we look at some of these small communities, you know, when we look at the age of Trump and people think, how did Donald Trump get elected whenever he uh, operates in such a uh, uh, explicit ways against the best interest of working class, low income, rural Oklahomans, uh, yet they still went out and they voted for him. And I think it was because they saw somebody that at least in his words, if not his actions, uh, I respected them and tried to give them some dignity. And when you talk about respect and dignity, having a local school in your community, man, that's the cornerstone for respect and, and, and dignity. 
And if we take that away from these communities without some community buy-in, I think there's a, there's a huge psychological harm to those communities. Not even, that's not to speak of the, of the kids that could be displaced to, to other schools. But here's, the, but here's the point. There's been no serious conversation about consolidating or eliminating schools. I mean, in terms of, as I just said, I mean, it's, it's not an instance of let's find 200 school districts and we're just going to wipe them off the map uh, in, the next, uh, in the next year. That's not the issue. The issue is the cost. The issue is, are there ways, as we've already seen with some of these school districts that have have come together, are there ways to consolidate, particularly on the administrative overhead side, ways to eliminate the duplication or to make it more beneficial and more cost effective uh, if you've got two small districts to be able to overlap some of those services? It's not to gut the districts. It's not to gut the schools. It's to find a better way uh, to, to address with a, address a situation that's not going to go away. And, uh, and as we have these school districts with fewer and fewer in them, I mean, these small, you know, where you have two or 300 kids in a, in a school district. Or smaller. Or smaller. Well, yeah. Or smaller. It's, it's about figuring out what's right in those communities to help them do, a, do the job that they want to do for their community and for their kids to educate them. So I think it's about instead of, instead of polarizing by saying, you know, we're kind of raising this flag and saying, oh, we're going to talk about the C word consolidation. It's more about saying, let's bring everybody to the table, get the shrillness out, get the get the the attempt to just kind of uh, either stonewall it or sensationalize it, and try to really come up with some some real effort to get some results. Right, but then I think about my son's school, who is in Coil, uh, and it's already a consolidated Coil, Meridian, and uh, Langston has already consolidated into that. It's still less than a thousand kids, but if you were to Close Coil, first off, the only employer in the town, and then maybe move all the kids to Guthrie. And again, I think, that, I think that's you, why there's never been a discussion yeah. about closing any of those kind of school districts just across the board summarily. I think it's about figuring out how to help them. Mm-hmm. I mean, in that size district, already having brought three, you know, three school districts together uh, to, to do a better job. And, and, and in some instances, that may not be one that can ever be the focal point. It may be others that, uh, that have uh, not done that already, uh, not in an area uh, geographically where mm-hmm. they are that they may be able to find some better results. There's so many and, rural schools. Yeah. I mean, you've got, sure. I mean, you've got where there's, there's one town that's got a child and they're geographically distant. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, yeah. they're isolated. And I, you know, I, I can remember uh, working very closely with some of these schools where you would have single digit student numbers for an entire grade level. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, are we really able to, to give those kids the, the same quality of education as their peers in, a, in a, a, even a moderately larger school? What do we do for these folks that are isolated geographically? How can we uh, reduce those costs? How can we? And if you look at those schools, one of the ways that they do that, and you know, some people will look at a, a school district like Sasaqua, Oklahoma, and they may see the superintendent making what seems to be you know, probably the highest salary of anybody that lives in, in Sasaqua, Oklahoma. But you know, the, the superintendent there, at least whenever I was a legislator, he wasn't just the superintendent. He was the bus driver. He was the janitor. Uh, he was the janitor. Yeah. He did, yeah. you know, all these other jobs that were that were tacked on top of being superintendent. It wasn't the same as being, you know, superintendent in Oklahoma City Public Schools. Right. You were you were picking up uh, everywhere. But the conversation does need to happen. Absolutely, Absolutely. it does. Yeah. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the ACLU, KOSU, its staff, or management.